following is a production of Government CIO Media. Welcome to this episode of Cybercast. I'm Kirsten Todd. And I'm Roger Cressy. Ellen Nakashima is a national security reporter for The Washington Post and two-time Pulitzer Prize winner. She has written extensively about cyber and surveillance issues. In 2018, she and her colleagues won a Pulitzer Prize for their reporting on Russia's efforts to influence the outcome of the 2016 presidential election and on the ongoing investigation into potential coordination between Trump associates and Moscow. In 2014, she was part of a team awarded a Pulitzer Prize for reporting on the hidden scope of National Security Agency surveillance and the resulting policy implications. Since joining the Post in 1995, Ellen has also served as a Southeast Asia correspondent and covered the White House and Virginia state politics. Ellen, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for being here. Through the years, Roger and I have each had thoughtful and provocative conversations with you, and we're looking forward to another one today. Thank you for having me. Well, this gives us a great opportunity, right? As recovering bureaucrats, we've always been on the receiving end. Right. So now we get to put the reporter <laughs> on the spot. The <laughs> so we'll start with something, obviously, that's on everybody's mind, which is the role of Russia in our election infrastructure. And as we're looking and getting prepared for the 2018 midterm elections, what are you seeing right now in the run-up to November? So what we keep hearing from the senior security officials in the administration is that they're not seeing the same level of Russian aggression or targeting of the actual voter registration systems as in 2016. They have slightly less visibility into what's going on social media, but we are seeing in recent days and weeks that companies from Facebook to Twitter and even Microsoft are reporting discoveries of fake accounts and of sites linked to either the Russian government or Russian troll farms, and they're taking them down. So there is a lot of activity from Russia, Russia-based, against some of these social media platforms and tech platforms. It's hard to know if Russia at this point is really going to attempt to interfere in the election in the way they did in 2016, two years ago. By this time, two years ago, they had already hacked and dumped out onto the internet through WikiLeaks thousands of emails that they had hacked from the Democratic National Committee. It could be that this year they're being stymied a little or are waiting, or maybe they're just not as interested in doing the same sorts of things against the parties in the midterms, but are still using the systems as a dry run to hone their skills in the lead up to 2020. Have you seen anything on the part of companies or government that you think has been uh, especially effective in deterrence? Do you think that there have been efforts that have been effectively deterring that activity? Or to your point, is it just something else that we're not picking up on? No, see, that's a key question. I mean, in fact, What we've seen in recent weeks and months is the Silicon Valley firms, tech firms, really kind of stepping up and being much more aggressive and public about their efforts to detect and counter Russian aggression on their platforms. And there's very little in the way of a similarly forceful or aggressive action by the federal government. In fact, the lack of such public deterrent action by the federal government is quite visible and noticeable and striking. And it's caused great consternation and concern on the part of lawmakers from both parties, as well as former administration officials who've actually served in both parties. So I don't think it's strictly a partisan thing. That lack of a strong 
shall we say, deterrent response from the Trump administration is something that a number of security experts say is probably the biggest shortcoming right now, which sends a really sort of dangerous signal that maybe this administration isn't serious about really seeking to counter. So part of the problem is there is this perception, as you said, that they're not serious. We had Jim Miller, former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, on recently, and he talked about we've had a problem in the past when he was still in with self-deterrence, but also with a lack of campaign planning, right, in the military parlance, a long-term strategic approach for how to address this issue, and we've been way too reactive. That combined with the White House's equation, right, it comes back to collusion, right? The collusion question. And then it comes back to presidential legitimacy, which is not the issue at all anymore. And they can't seem to get over that to focus on from a national security perspective, how do we bring all elements of government to bear to address this? Are you getting any of that from your people you're talking to? Absolutely. And in fact, it's not so much that they, the administration can't get over it. It's the president himself. It's, It's President Trump, who can't seem to distinguish between Russian interference, which his own intelligence community agrees that it did happen or they sought to interfere in 2016. There's no doubt about that. He can't separate that from a perceived attack on the legitimacy of his own election, the collusion issue. And so because he can't distinguish the two, separate the two, he has a hard time, it appears, getting behind a, say, even a declaratory statement from the White House that Russia, any attempted interference will not stand, will not be tolerated. And it's that lack of a forceful sort of message from the top, from the president, that stymies the whole effort, a real sort of robust whole of government strategy. Do you think that that lack of the ability to message from President Trump, has that been part of the reason why we haven't seen an effective national, a a national cybersecurity strategy come out of the White House that would for all intents and purposes, incorporate the type of deterrence that we're talking about. Do you think that that would help along those lines, or do you see them as something separate? As you know, the White House and National Security Council have been working on a strategy, a cyber strategy, since they took office. But the lack of a concerted strategy to counter and deter foreign malign influence, I think, is hampered by the lack of strong and forceful declaration or leadership buy-in from the president, from the top. And we saw just, what, a couple of weeks ago, all the senior security agency chiefs standing up at the White House, you know, from the dais, and warning that Russia is still expecting it to try to interfere in this year's elections, and that this is something that they're all working toward to try to prevent. But noticeably absent from the dais, there was President Trump. That was a significant absence. (laughs) Let's talk about something that you reported on recently, and we'll get into D.C. geek speak. This would be PPD 20, (laughs) Presidential (laughs) Policy Directive 20. PPD 20 was from the Obama years and has now been superseded by a new White House directive. For those who don't keep up on acronymania, why does this matter? What is this new directive about? And why should people out there care about it? You probably worked on an earlier version, right, of a PPD, which was probably an NSPD or HSPD. Oh, you know, every administration comes in and they change the acronym as part of the refresh. We've got the new team in, but it's basically the same damn things. Just They're like all titles and directives. positions. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So we don't know. Well, it hasn't been 
publicly announced what this new directive is called. Is it a national security policy memorandum and what number it has? But reportedly, I mean, I've been told it has been signed. It was signed by the president, but it was not made public. So we don't have the actual public details of it. What I understand it to contain is a delegation down from the president to the secretary of defense, that level of authorities to undertake certain offensive cyber actions that would say fall below what we call the use of force, things that don't necessarily cause or result in death and catastrophic economic destruction. Kinetic effects. Kinetic effects, exactly. It's significant in that it's a signal that this administration intends to loosen the reins a little on its military in particular to undertake offensive actions that could help defend its own networks, and in particular, maybe even forestall Russian interference in networks here in the run-up to the midterm elections. We don't know what the language is, so I'm not sure yet exactly how and what role all the other agencies, the interagency, will play in this. And that was one of the big issues for the Pentagon, for the military, with the old PPD-20, which was that they felt they were hamstrung by the endless bureaucratic meetings over even what they considered to be routine cyber actions, doing a DDoS, I guess, a distributed denial of service attack on, say, maybe China, doing intellectual property theft, um, which they felt resulted in needless time-wasting meetings to discuss whether or not this was going to result in diplomatic issues or um, you know, other interagency problems. So... As someone who has spent time in needless bureaucratic meetings, whenever you get the interagency together, there is always plenty of reasons not to do something, right? Government by design is conservative with a small c. And having been in the Pentagon, worked in the Pentagon, there were plenty of times where the rest of the interagency would say, well, this will cause issues for us elsewhere. And that gets part to the self-deterrence problem. And I'm reading some of the reporting that came out after this and the concerns that former administration officials have raised. Well, this is going to be a lack of coordination now and the Pentagon's going to go rogue. That, to me, is a way over rotation. I I agree with you there. What we fail to do is the minimal level of actions to defend our networks, as you said. And anything that the Pentagon is doing in that category is not something that the State Department should have an issue about. And it's something that the NSC and the White House should say, that's part of our national cybersecurity strategy to defend our networks. Are you getting that at all from people? Yeah, that's generally the idea. I understand that the Pentagon is pleased with this new directive. And it's also sort of in keeping with this administration's general trend toward delegating more authority down to commanders in the field to undertake operations. So I think it's a general shift in attitude. We talk a lot about how we can bring together military and civilian capabilities on the part of government to work more effectively together. Do you see this as an opportunity for DOD and DHS to come together on cybersecurity? Is there anything that you've heard in this new directive that leans toward that collaboration and coordination? You know, I'm not sure. I know that this directive apparently applies to other agencies other than DOD, although the Pentagon is the main agency that it's aimed at. I just don't know yet what it entails. Stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) We all wait patiently or impatiently. Let's talk a little bit about Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C. 
social media is now, I believe, a critical infrastructure sector, however we define it. It impacts our national and our economic security. And we can start looking at the 2016 elections, although, you know, more and more we can look beforehand to see the impact that it's having. And we had Mark Zuckerberg come to Washington, D.C. in March to talk about the role of Facebook specifically, but social media. And he even, you know, threw out the R word. He said, you know, let's talk about regulation. And it's not a call toward regulation, but clearly there is a need for government and this sector to work together more effectively. What do you think needs to be done for government and social media to work together? What should the outcome be right now, particularly in the short term to the run up to the 2018 elections, but also 2020, but then just across the board in looking at our national and economic security? One thing that's really important to note is that When it comes to, for instance, foreign interference, like Russian interference in uh, our democracy through the use of trolls or fake accounts getting onto platforms, the battleground is really in the private sector, on the networks of these firms in Silicon Valley, not the U.S. government networks. And these are platforms that U.S. law enforcement and intelligence agencies by law, by design, by tradition, by value, don't have visibility into. We don't want the NSA sitting on Facebook's networks, right? Right. So these private sector firms have to. It's their responsibility to really step up and take responsibility for the security of the data flowing through their platforms to make sure that their users, their customers are not exploited or targeted or influenced by malign actors overseas. And that's been the challenge here, right? Because if we sort of traditionally look to the federal government to say, how are you going to help us? Are you going to defend us? But the battleground is the private sector's networks. The Russians have so expertly figured that out, exploited the seams and hit us in the battleground where they know the federal government really is kind of shackled a bit in in moving into it. So what we saw starting, for instance, two years ago was Facebook and other tech firms saying, you know, we were blindsided by this. You, the federal government, didn't warn us. You weren't sharing information. You know, the FBI was tracking some of this and didn't apparently share the information in real time with the companies. It's starting to get a little bit better, but it has to get a lot better. That's number one. And number two, the tech firms, they're actually the best, I think, at detecting what's going on on their own networks, on their own platforms, more so faster than, say, what the NSA or the FBI is going to come up with. Well, I think that's true for industry anyway. Generally, Yeah, they are the best at seeing what's on their networks. And now, number three, they can share back in good time actionable, usable evidence or information to the federal government, who may be the Department of Homeland Security or DHS, so that they can use it and pool and put it together and then maybe pass it to Cyber Command or NSA to help them build up their own profile so they can put together a bigger common operating picture of what's going on outside. They look outwards into what's happening overseas. They know what's going on inside, inside the U.S., they can put it together and have a bigger, better picture. But right now, we don't have a reliable way, I guess, of putting that all together, all of that information into one place, analyzing it and acting on it. And it's how do you communicate? How does the government communicate nation state activity effectively to the private sector? Because I know one thing that Facebook has said is, hey, if we knew, it wouldn't have taken us so long to actually address it. And I mean, there are different pieces to this, but the idea is what can be shared? When can it be shared? so that industry can actually respond effectively. And this is 
while we're dealing with the current environment and the innovation of technology in the social media sector, it's an age-old problem. And we're still trying to figure out how to reconcile that. And this is where the role of DOD, the role of DHS is becoming more prominent to figure out how to aggregate all of that data. Yeah, very much so. And I think in May, these tech firms in Silicon Valley convened a meeting with the FBI and DHS for the first time to really kind of in one place discuss how they viewed the threat, the problem, what steps they each were taking, and where did they think they needed to go moving forward. It's a little analogous to terrorism in a pre-9-11 world because we looked at the problem through a certain lens and we didn't think about how we could face it differently. And I think what 2016 taught us on social media as a critical infrastructure is that we have to look at this differently. And so we're now starting that process. I think the private sector and the social media companies have a responsibility that they're starting to finally acknowledge and that might actually change. And I also think the government is starting to recognize this isn't about just identifying potential individuals who can be prosecuted, right? This right. is about a different type of intel sharing or information sharing. And this isn't something that some damn ISAC is going to solve. It is qualitatively <laughs> different. And so we're making progress there. But the question is how much before 18 and certainly how much before 2020. And I'm hearing all sorts of ideas come up about what we need because there's no one agency right now that exists whose mission is to counter foreign influence operations, this sort of hybrid threat. Different agencies have different pieces of it, but no one agency has it all. And so some say, well, we should have something like an NCTC maybe for the um, information operations problem. Or some say create a fusion center where you can have the different agencies together with representatives of the private sector sitting in the same place to combine their you know, intelligence and threat information. You know what you're asking? You need a Y2K approach to this. (laughs) Because much like Y2K, we brought the government and the private sector together, and it was a clock that was ticking. You have the same thing when it comes to elections. There is a deadline. You have to work together. You need that type of construct with a clock. And to do that, you need to have a sense of urgency, and you need the leadership from the top who's going to say, yes, this is a problem, we're going to tackle it. One thing that we've heard is the idea of task force, select committee, commission. It's this idea where you have a prioritized issue. It is a priority on the part of the president. You have funding and resources and a call to action and a confined period of time. And this is something that, you know, we've heard from people within government as well as outside of government to focus on this one particular issue. When you talk about the May meeting with government and members of the tech industry, Were there any outcomes to that or next steps or structures that people were proposing? There was sort of a general sense that this was worth following up on. And in fact, the tech firms are meeting again this Friday in San Francisco, but not without the DHS and FBI present. But it's going to be the tech firms meeting again to decide what next steps they want to take. Let's go back to the issue of the role of the military. In your reporting, you talk about how General Nakasone, who now runs the National Security Agency, wants to keep Cybercom and NSA together for an additional two years, basically saying that Cybercom is still in its infancy and it's just not ready yet. I'll mix my metaphors here to take the training wheels off and ride on its own. Do you see that there is a reluctance with NSA that has more to do about bureaucratics or really more about operational readiness that is behind this? And I think it also speaks to this other question of how are we going to use military-owned capabilities 
when it comes to critical infrastructure protection in this new era. What I'm hearing is that General Nakasone assessed that the Cyber Command wasn't yet mature enough, didn't have the capabilities to gather enough of its own intelligence or get the intelligence support needed from the NSA to conduct its operations. And that is something that is sort of a growing process, a maturation process. Now, part of that, I was told, also results from maybe sort of a cultural tradition over at NSA when they're used to they gather intelligence, foreign intelligence, for, for foreign intelligence purposes, and they're not necessarily focused so much on gathering intelligence for military targets when directly tasked to do so. And so sometimes some of the information that intelligence that the, the Cyber Command would need to do its mission is not readily available or forthcoming from NSA at the operational level. I'm told that at the more senior levels, they all get it. They know that the two need to coordinate and cooperate, but sometimes it it doesn't always filter down to the operational levels. So there's a sense that having one person in charge of both organizations helps or guarantees that Cyber Command will get the help it needs. Uh, And if you had two separate leaders, then you'd have more of a competition, let's say, for resources. So that's at least one way of looking at it. Do you think that that's something that should happen in the future? I mean, if you're looking at, and from your perspective, both national security and cybersecurity, mm-hmm. and we've all heard the discussions around there should be a cybersecurity agency, which, you know, <laughs> that's way into the future and after a long uh, series of analyses. Right. But should Cybercom be its own entity? I mean, recognizing that there does need to be a better vehicle of information and yeah. intelligence gathering, but should it evolve into that place? Okay, I think if, if it can really develop its own indigenous indigenous uh, intelligence gathering capability, that it can be autonomous from the NSA, then it's probably a good thing. I mean, they are already uh, their own unified, full unified command on the level of, say, Central Command or Pacific Command. Right. But they also, you know, are not expected to, I guess, duplicate the platforms that the NSA has built up over decades. And I think when Cyber Command was stood up, the thinking at the time of, say, Defense Secretary Gates was that they never would and couldn't. And so it would always make sense to have Cyber Command be reliant on NSA. But I guess as the years have gone on, there's more of a sense that maybe Cyber Command should be better off as its own autonomous organization, although General Nakasone and others have always said they will rely. I mean, Cyber Command and NSA always will be working closely together. Let's talk a little bit about privacy Mm -hmm. and surveillance, because you've done a lot of great reporting on this. When we talk about the election challenges right now, we talk about the social media companies. As you said, the battle is now on the private sector networks, and I think that it's a very important point. Yet there are still concerns about how much of my information is available for analysis, for distribution. The big change now is people are finally starting to understand it's not the government that's that's paying attention to your personal information. Mm-hmm. It's what the private sector and the social media companies are doing with it, aggregating it, and then using it. Um, we used to joke when people would say after all the Snowden stuff came out, I don't want the government spying on me. We, our first response was, don't flatter yourself. You're not that interesting. <laughs> but to Silicon Valley, you're very interesting 
for advertising, et cetera. How do you see the privacy debate evolving as now this there is this greater awareness about what these companies are doing with the PII, with your personal identifiable information that is now being marketed and used by all these companies? I think what's happening in Europe is also going to really affect what's happening here with their latest GDPR, which imposes some pretty stringent requirements on tech firms, what they can do with their data. And because a lot of these firms are American companies, they're multinationals, those companies are going to have to adhere to those regulations. And they're going to have to figure out how to to satisfy both Europeans and what's going on here. And I think Americans are starting to realize, too, that these companies see their data as ways to just basically make money. It's, it's a, a commodity. commodity. Yeah. Well, we uh, say to, I mean, sell to advertisers. Data is the most critical asset, and right. every company has it, and particularly the data of its customers and clients. Once GDPR passed, then we started to see all of these notices coming into our, our email inboxes about all, you know, what your different car company or bank and everything, what they're collecting and what they're doing with it. And you just start to realize, whoa, okay, I didn't realize they were collecting all that information on me, but they are. And we've also heard from some of the sectors that they're in the United States that they're using GDPR as the de facto standard. And so what will be interesting Mm -hmm. is, are we going to see that across other industries? And will this become the de facto standard? Or are we going to try to modify it the way we're seeing with the California legislation um, and what that means? It's coming in. I think from a consumer protection perspective, it's not a bad thing. I know a number of large corporations are having, you know, daily aneurysms on this right now, but that's actually not a bad thing either. Yeah, I don't really want my phone tracking, you know, every single place I go and and having each app keep that location data when I'm sleeping or wherever I go and then sending it to some <laughs> Here's some a advertiser coffee deal around the corner. <laughs> and of course, once they collect it, then it becomes available to potentially the government if they should want to go after it with legal process. So that's the other danger of collecting all this information. And so this is about changing the conventional wisdom that government is not the issue here. I think people have so over-rotated on this. It's not government collecting on you that you should be worried about. It's what the private sector is collecting on you and then how they're using it. And how they're using it. That you should be worried about. I loved Enemy of the State. Great movie. Gene Hackman, Will Smith. Trust me when I tell you the government doesn't work that way. (laughs) Well, and it's also that all of this data is being collected and none of it ever gets purged. And this was an issue that I was talking to about with the uh, federal government's privacy officer a couple of years ago, that he did a couple of days where he went into agencies and said, you have got to get rid of data. I mean, the challenge with now having files electronically is you don't get them stacking up in your office. So you have to get rid of them. Otherwise, you can't walk in. It's we are collecting data both in government and much more so in private sector at rates never seen before. But we're not getting rid of any of it, even when it no longer is relevant. And so to your point about what gets collected on individuals, you now have this historical data that can start to look at patterns and behaviors that can then, you know, get enough AI and you can figure out what comes in in the future. And that's where I think a lot of the danger lies as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So you've been in this industry for quite a long time and you've reported and have had the rigor and the diligence and the discipline from seeing it over a couple of decades. How has traditional reporting changed for you and in general 
in an era where we don't just have 24-hour news cycles by networks, but we have 24-hour news cycles by individuals on issues like national security. So individuals that don't necessarily have expertise, but they have access to the internet. How has your reporting changed or what have you seen in this space? Apart from getting much less sleep now, (laughs) it's um, especially in the last two years, there's just been, it seems, an explosion, a plethora of new sites, news sites and blogs and bloggers who are podcasts, podcasts and, you know, many legitimate. Right. And then there are others who are, exist for maybe more propagandistic purposes or to really be provocative and not always vet the information they're putting out there. And that becomes a problem, kind of polluting, in a sense, the discourse which has also given rise to another side industry of fact checkers and fact checking (laughs) because they now have plenty of material to go out and try to, you know, truth squad. But it does make it difficult. I mean, it must be incredibly difficult for the average reader or or viewer to sort through because it's hard enough for us sometimes to figure out what is truth, what is real. And sometimes, you know, when we even see tweets, uh, we'll say, wait, is this a real tweet or is this a fake tweet that someone put out to trick us? You've just got to think about all these things now that you never really had to focus on so much in the past. And um, then the news cycle is relentless. It used to be maybe even only 10 years ago, you'd file a story, say by five o'clock, more or less, have it done, goes to the copy editor, you're done for the day, and the next day you, you come back and maybe you do a new story. These days, you know, you could be expected to file a story at eight in the morning and then update it at nine or at noon because of the internet. You just don't have daily deadlines anymore. And our own editors are not as concerned about what's going into the actual hard news, dead tree copy version of the paper, but, you know, what's going up online, what's going to be on your phone. This cycle is very interesting because we are getting distracted by the tweets. We're getting distracted by, I mean, I had a conversation with a senior administration official. It was at the time when we were getting tweets about Hillary Clinton's book, and it was something that was irrelevant to national security. And he was saying, you know, while the nation is putting above the fold stories about this tweet, there are major policies that we're developing and no one's paying attention to them. And because there is a little bit of the group think, so if I'm going to report on this, then somebody else is going to report on that. And meanwhile, we've got major, you know, global policies being executed by the administration and just not having the discourse. It's not whether you agree or disagree, but we're not actually having the discourse on the substance. We're having much more discourse on what I'll call the peripheral and the entertainment. The politics and the appearance and, oh, my God, the president just tweeted this from his helicopter as he's going off to Bedminster. So that's something that's very, very different. When this administration first took office, President Trump started tweeting. We thought, you know, for the first few months anyway, we thought, wow, you know. And we have access. <laughs> yeah. And like, I remember some of these tweets becoming like huge front page stories. I'm covering one of his tweets about accusing the Obama administration or President Obama of wiretapping Trump Tower and, you know, early on a Saturday morning or something at 5 a.m. and having to rush out and do a story. And I thought, surely this is going to end. This, he can't keep this pace up and we're, we're not going to be doing this day in and day out. But no, I mean, the pace continues. These tweets continue. And I mean, he continues to make policy announcements, news announcements that he's letting someone go by tweet. That's a new norm. <laughs> It's new. It's new. I think Rex Tillerson is still waiting for a follow-up conversation. 
<laughs> so along these lines, your employer has a particular bullseye on it by the White House. Part of it has to do with the president's view of the traditional media and how he uses that view to advance his own agenda. I think most people in D.C. now now understand there is a method to his madness on this. And you have a unique challenge. How does the Post handle that? And I know the Times has it, the New York Times has it as well. But proximity matters around here, and you guys are right down the street Mm -hmm. from the White House. As an institution, how are you handling that? You know, we are quite used to now being attacked by the president or allies of the president as, at times, fake news. And what we do is we just have to continue to come to work and do our jobs and not let it get to us because it's immaterial, really, I think, to what I'm really supposed to be doing, which is going out and reporting, trying to figure out what the truth is and what the agencies are up to. I just can't let myself get distracted. And there's a little bit of the, you know, this too shall pass, right? I mean, we tend to look at our current state as being always the most dramatic, emphatic, but we look historically and particularly, you know, as we've seen a lot of historical recollections of what happened in the 70s and the 60s and the 50s, our nation goes through these periods of time where certain things feel much more impactful. But when you look at them historically, we realize we kind of get through them. We have to stay true to those fundamental issues and disciplines. Yeah, and look, it's hard to know how much he really means any of what he says. One minute when he was still on the campaign trail, he was barring our reporters from, you know, covering his rallies. And the next he's inviting them into Trump Tower to have interviews with him, or he's calling Bob Costa, one of our top reporters, a White House reporter, to give him you know, the news on what he's doing or just talking to him. So it's sort of, it ebbs and flows. The problem, though, is, so I always view these things through my previous terrorism perspective, right? Mm-hmm. They, you know, online radicalization in the terrorism world happens when you keep reading and seeing the same images and the same commentary mm-hmm. over and over, and you begin to believe it, and you talk yourself into it. And what we're seeing now is the attack on legitimate press is creating a similar type of radicalization in some segments of our society who are predisposed to not trust the traditional media. And there is this real growing concern, I feel, that people might decide to go over the edge on it. And I think this is where the administration doesn't truly appreciate the potential collateral damage of what I agree with. He is using it for political administration advantage and manipulation. In some respects, that's no different than what other presidents have done using different medium. But there is a very real risk here. And that, I think, is something that has to be paid attention to. That's absolutely right. I agree with you there. So we will continue to trust your reporting. We may not agree with everything that is reported, but we always know that it's accurate <laughs> and that it's based on fact. And Ellen, we really want to thank you for coming in and we wish you continued support because we will be reading and we will always be supporting what you and your colleagues are doing out there. So Ellen, in addition to your byline, how else can uh, viewers and listeners find you? Follow me on Twitter at Nakashima E. It's been a real pleasure having you on Cybercast. Thanks. We'll have you back. Definitely. (laughs) Thanks, Ellen. Cybercast can be found on the government CIO media website and on Apple Podcasts. Feel free to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybercast. We hope you enjoyed the show.